Okay, so you can see I've titled this God's Will for Saul and you, me, everybody. This is God's general will. So you can fill in that blank if you want. Oh, we have some late attendees here. Does anybody, by the way, need a handout that doesn't have one? We good? Okay. So God's will for Saul and you. Uh, And when you talk about God's will, I want to make a quick point at the outset. God's will inherently means not your will. Most of the time, right? If we're doing it right, they align, and that's something that we're going to talk about, but that's why I say it's his will in his way. We've already talked about some of the lessons, goals. So let's look at the scripture in Acts 22, verses 3 through 16. If you have a handout, it's listed there. If not, open up there to Acts chapter 22, verse 3 and 16. And we're going to read Paul's account of his conversion. He's in Jerusalem. He's on trial. And so what he says here is important based on his audience because he's speaking to the Jews who want to kill him. uh, And he's trying to get out of it. So let's see what he says. He's addressing the Jewish leaders, and he says, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city, in Jerusalem, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. He says, I persecuted this way, Christianity, to death, just like they're trying to do to him, by the way, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up, go into Damascus, and there you'll be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand to those who were with me and came into Damascus. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near to me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So here Paul is in Jerusalem, really fighting for his life to the Jewish leaders, gives an account of his conversion, trying to identify with them and saying, I was just like you. I was zealous. I didn't like Christianity. But something happened, something changed. And what we're about to see here is that Paul responded completely appropriately. But let's summarize what we just talked about here. Saul starts out, or Saul Paul starts out by giving his background, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, brought up in the city. He does the same thing in Philippians, 
Do you remember? He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the nation of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's all talking about his family. He had nothing to do with that. What he's saying there is that's my bloodline. That's where I came from. I am a Hebrew from Hebrews. He didn't have anything to do with his circumcision. He didn't have anything to do with his bloodline. That's kind of, but he was kind of flexing, saying, my parents did it right. And not only am I of the nation of Israel, I can trace my lineage. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And then he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness, which is in the law, I was found blameless. Paul was kind of a guy. Like he was the guy in Judaism. But something happened. He set out for Damascus with this passion, with this zeal, with this love and fervor, excuse me, for Judaism to capture Christians, but Jesus captured him instead. And in that same time frame, almost in that exact same moment, with the same fervor and intensity that he had hated Christianity, with the same amount of passion that he was going after Christians, he did a 180 degree turn and put that same passion, feel, zeal, and fervor into making disciples. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having that sort of zeal and that sort of passion for something and then immediately changing? I've been zealous about things in my life. I can hardly imagine what it would be like. I would, what would it take for me to completely flip to the opposite of what I was passionate about? Take my love for, for Oklahoma State example. If Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, I'm a cowboy of cowboys. My dad has two degrees from OSU. My mom went there. Both my brothers and I all have undergraduate and master's degrees from there. I grew up going to games there. My sister-in-law has her vet degree there. I met my wife. I met a cowgirl there. Um, before I was 10 years old, I'd met Barry Sanders, had my picture taken with Thurman Thomas. I have letters from Boone Pickens. Uh, I can't imagine what it would take for me to flip. So Rush just said, go you. What about if in the middle of that, what about if in the middle of that, Jesus appeared to me and said, all of that means nothing. The fact that you work for the athletic department, the fact that you work at the world's largest student union, the fact that you get to teach classes, you're throwing that all away. You're on the wrong team. Give all that up and go recruit for OU. Tell the world how great the Sooners are. Leave your home and go yell boomer across Asia and Europe. And by the way, the whole time you're doing that, you're going to be persecuted and suffering. I can't imagine anything more horrible. <laughs> Can you? What could motivate me to do something like that? What about you? What are you zealous about? And what would it take for you to flip in a moment, not over time, by the way, in a moment to the other side with the same sort of zeal, passion, and fervor? Paul did because right out of the gate, 
He asks the right questions. We've talked about this before. It's not new. But here's something that we can follow as an example. What two questions did Paul ask? Number one, who are you, Lord? Every person who walks the face of the earth is put to a decision about what they're going to do with Jesus. They have to make a decision about who he is. They can either ignore him or deny him, or they can accept him and believe him. Which did Paul do in the moment? He did the right thing. He believed immediately. And then like so many of us, at least my story, I thought that was the finish line. I didn't think there was anything else. But then as I grew and matured and was taught more appropriate things, I realized the second question is what the majority of the New Testament spends its time on, which is not how do you have eternal life, but what do you do with once you have it? And he says, what do you want me to do? That's an example for us. If we're supposed to join in following his example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that he set, right out of the gate, Paul starts setting a pattern. Who are you? Make a decision about who Jesus is, and then what do you want me to do about it? And we're all put to that decision. And we have to ask these same questions. We have to make a decision about who Jesus is, and then once we understand the love, the mercy, the sacrifice, the grace, and that he's really the only logical path forward, the only reasonable thing for us to do in response, is with all sincerity and with all intention, ask, now what? Now what do I do? By the way, Paul spent most of his life doing the exact thing that Jesus told him to do. Not just in this conversation, but in later conversations. 13 of the New Testament books are written by Paul to address what you do once you have eternal life. Just like Saul, we should ask questions pertaining to understanding who Jesus is. I see some of our younger kids and our youth and some people that I don't recognize, so let's make a decision. I'm going to put you to a point of decision right now to make a decision about who Jesus is. He is the Savior. That's what his name means. He's the Christ Messiah, the anointed one. He's the only person qualified to grant eternal life. He was born of the Holy Spirit. He lived a perfect life. He offered himself up as the only payment that would satisfy our sin debt. He rose from the grave to a new life, conquering death and demonstrating himself to be the son of God. And now he offers to anyone who would believe in him eternal life. It's that simple. Paul, in that moment, believed. And then, the second question we have to ask are questions pertaining to his will for our lives. He tells us all throughout the New Testament, look, we're going to talk about some things here in just a second, about God's will. That's not all. There's tons of scripture that we could go to to demonstrate God's will in our lives, but I've chosen some that Paul emphasizes and re-emphasizes over and over again in scripture. But he tells us plainly and specifically through his word where to set our desires and how to live our faith based on his word. 
And that's not easy. It wasn't easy for Paul. If we're going to follow his example and join in those who are doing the same, you have to understand that when you come alongside that partnership, it's not easy. There's sacrifice involved. It's going to cost you your time, your effort, your energy, your will, what you want for what God wants. You have to lay all that aside, not to gain eternal life, but in order to grow, in order to mature, and more importantly, to obey. Which one do you think God cares more about, your sacrifice or your obedience? What is it? It's your obedience. It is sacrificial for you to lay down your life and make it count for Christ, but he doesn't just want that. He wants you to do it right, with the right motives and in the right way. So let's see it. Saul was blinded, sent off to wait for God's message, and the Lord told Ananias to tell Saul, by the way, isn't it interesting that God's word came through man to Paul, just like God's word comes through Paul to us? The Lord tells Ananias to tell Saul, Brother Saul, receive your sight. The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness to him of all men of what you have seen and heard. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that the great commission? To go and make disciples? To be witnesses of Jesus Christ's love, of his death and resurrection? Isn't that what he tells the disciples in Acts? You're going to be witnesses of what you've seen and heard. Then he tells us, we make application from what he told them to go and make disciples of all the nations. Just like Paul, we are witnesses for him to all men of what we've seen and heard. So understand that God desires for whatever your name is, for you to know his will. Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to what? Prove what the will of God is. He wants you to know. We know from his word. In Ephesians 5, he says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We're actually commanded to know what God's will is for our lives. So at Stillwater Bible, when we talk about our purpose and our plan and our process, that's systematic and intentional. Because God's will is for us to make disciples. It's to evangelize and to train, which we're about to talk about. Number two, understand that God desires for you, not just for JB, Brian, Hunter, Brandy, and Blake, but for you to witness to all people of what you have heard. Have you heard the good news message of salvation? I know that most of you go to church here, so you hear it every Sunday. You've heard it. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. All of, I don't know if you guys can hear, but all of our children are reciting all the verses to me. So we hear this stuff, and we pass it on so that others can hear it and believe. And then here in Colossians, he, Paul says, here's what he, he said, this is why he does what he does. He actually says this is his purpose statement. 
He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So just as with Saul, Paul, it's God's will for our actions to align with his will. That is a textbook definition of Christian obedience. When your actions align with God's will, that's obedience. So what's it called in our Christian life when our actions don't align with God's will? Disobedience. One of the questions for discussion in grow groups is going to be, what happens when we're disobedient? And I know that our brains are triggered to immediately go to potential discipline, But it's actually worse than that. What happens if Christians aren't out there proclaiming the message? What happens if Christians don't have integrity in their message? People aren't going to listen to you. That's why so much, including last week's message on being justified before men, our works before the sight of men, so that it can validate our faith. People are looking for authentic people. They're looking for something to follow. And whether or not we are obedient determines at least in part the effectiveness of our message. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not preaching at you. The same thing is true to me, for me. It's the same for everybody. That's why he's given us a body. That's why he says, admonishing and teaching every man. At different times, we need correction. We need admonishment. We need taught truth. We need rebuked so that we can be complete. So that when people see us, our good works, it will shine before them. Okay, this is obedience. So here's the three things that we're going to talk about. When we talk about using Paul as an example for God's will, here are three things that he goes over and over again in Scripture. We just talked about one of them, which is proclaiming Christ to all men. We get a purpose statement here in Colossians 1, but he also gives a purpose statement in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says, I didn't come to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not in cleverness of speech, by the way, because I don't want the cross of Christ to be made void. We know that the message is perpetuated when we teach faithful men the truth and they train others and they evangelize unbelievers. So that's the number one thing that I'm going to take from Paul's example as God's will for my life is to proclaim Christ to all men. Number two, does Paul talk about this a lot? Attaining the prize? He does. In 1 Corinthians 9, he tells us how you should do it. He says you should be intentional. I don't run the race without aim. I don't box, it's just beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. He's intentional about what he's doing. In Philippians 3, he says, I press on towards the goal for the prize. In 2 Timothy 4, he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there's reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his coming or his appearing. Number three, Paul talks a lot about pleasing the Lord. 
Have you thought about that? Well, let me ask you this. Maybe, maybe some of you conceptualize it like this. Is there a difference between God's pleasure in you and his love for you? Can God love you any more or any less than he already does? He can't. Can God's pleasure in you increase or decrease? It can. Based on what? Bingo. I said your faithfulness. That's exactly right. In, verse, in Colossians 1, he says, so that you'll walk worthy in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In Colossians 3, he says, do your work heartily unto the Lord rather than to men. We do what God says. We do his will, not what men want us to do. Why? Because it's from the Lord that we're going to receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ that we serve, not man. We don't play to what a man wants or what men want. We play and run according to what God wants. So what's our purpose in this life? We're just going to extrapolate on these three things and then we'll go talk about it. Saul's purpose was explicitly given by God through man as we talked about. It's the same with us. We're to proclaim Christ to all men. This entails two main functions. The first is evangelism. Uh, for anybody who may not know, do you evangelize believers? No, you don't evangelize believers. They're already believers. You evangelize, you present the gospel to unbelievers in an effort to persuade them to believe. To believe what? What are we trying to persuade unbelievers to believe? What did you say? Yeah, believe Jesus Christ, believe the good news message. Those are tied in the same. We want the, what is the object of the faith that we want them to believe? What are, what are we trying to get them to put their faith in? The person of Jesus. There are a whole bunch of facts about Jesus that are true. He was born of a virgin. He was sinless, gave up that sinless life. All that stuff's true, but believing the facts about Jesus does not save us. Putting our faith in that because of what he did, we place our faith in Jesus and that saves us. That's the message. Second thing is training. This is teaching believers or making disciples. If you've had our 412 or our 2-2, this is nothing new. You guys can get up and teach this. But for anybody who hasn't heard, for believers, we train them and equip them so that they can go out and do the same. Number one, we are to be disciples. How effective are you going to be at making disciples if you're not one yourself? Probably not very effective. And potentially dangerous, to be honest with you. We are to be disciples so that we can make, number two, so that we can make disciples. That's proclaiming the message. That's the example of Paul's life that we want to take to understand God's will. Two, we want to run so that we may win the prize. We want to run so that we may win the prize. This was big to Paul. He believed and took to heart what Jesus said about rewards. 
Paul believed and took to heart what Jesus said about rewards. That's what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every person in this room, just as sure as I am standing here looking at you, you will stand in front of Jesus Christ, the God and Savior, and again give an account of your life. And in that moment, he's going to recompense or reward or give back to you based on what you've done in this body. Paul talked about this all the time. But so did Jesus. And I think Paul understood this parable better than most because I think this is where he got his rewards theology. So let's read it. In Matthew 25, 14 through 30, Jesus talks about the parable of the talents. I'm going to go through it quickly. Jesus said, For it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, another two, and another one, each according to his ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with him, and he gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away, and he dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, we're in that long time, by the way, right now. Now, after a long time, the matter of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. Jesus gave him talents based on his ability, and this person used his talents to gain more. Jesus said, You're faithful in a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. Jesus said the exact same thing to the person with less talents based on his ability. He said, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the one who received the one talent came and said, Master, I knew you're a hard man, reaping where you don't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. I was afraid. So I went and hid your talent in the ground. See, you can have back what's yours. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I don't sow and where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have at least put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take that talent away from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more shall be given, and he'll have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does, shall be taken away. Throw the worthless slave into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not hell, by the way. So this first blank, what is the key to rewards based on this passage? Well done, good and it's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. There's an application and an implication here for you. Has God given you a talent? Has he given you a gift or an ability? We're going to talk about it here in just a second. Do you guys, is your two there that God gives believers? Does it start with God gives believers? Okay. God gives believers at least one 
spiritual gift. This isn't a new message, but it's good to be reminded of, especially if we're going to talk about being faithful. Think about that grace that God gives you. He's going to reward you someday based on your faithfulness to serve, and he gives you a supernatural ability by which to serve in the body. If you've put your faith in Christ, you have at least one spiritual gift. What does he want you to do with it? As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving. Be a good steward of the manifold grace of God. What he's saying there is don't waste it. I've given you a talent to serve with. All you have to do is be faithful to use it. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says there's a variety of gifts, but there's one spirit. There's a variety of effects, varieties of ministries that come from those gifts. You have a gift. With your gift, you can have a ministry. From that ministry will produce desired effects. The gift for the ministry produces effects. That all is dependent on your faithfulness. And our gifts are for who, by the way? Are they for you? They're not. They're for the body. They're so that the body can grow and so that the body can mature. And if you're faithful to do that and everybody's using their individual gifts, the body functions appropriately. And then someday when we do, Jesus is going to reward us for it. It's beautiful. Okay, three, we are to work to please the Lord. Paul talks a lot. We've talked about him mentioning pleasing the Lord and talking a lot about it. And he does. And our service is well-pleasing to the Lord. We've already talked about the Lord is most pleased in us when we are obedient. Does God want you to be obedient because he wants to lord over you in power? Or does he want you to be obedient because it's what's best for you? It's 100% because it's what's best for you. When you align your actions with his will, it's good for you and it's good for the body and it's good for the future kingdom. The problem is, is that it's men like me, men like you that do the ministry and we're flawed. And a lot of times we want to do it for the wrong reasons and with the wrong motives and our pride gets in the way or our arrogance gets in the way and the body doesn't function the way it's supposed to. Look what Paul says in Galatians 1. He says, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. What Paul's saying there is you can't do both. You can't do your work to please a man and do a work to please God at the same time. A bondservant is a slave of somebody. A bondservant is somebody who does the will of their master. Your master is either men or God. Who are you going to serve? It's the same thing he says in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you're going to receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. We serve Christ, not man. That's hard. Because when you go to work and your buddies are doing something, there's peer pressure. Or you go at home and something is, you know, tempting you, 
to act in pride or to act in arrogance or to do something outside of God's will, it's hard. Uh, we have to keep a perspective of understanding that our work is to please God, not men. And that's what this is. We serve Christ, not man. Because in the end, he says, it's the Lord Christ you serve. And he's the one that's going to give the reward of the inheritance. In the end, you're not going to stand before mankind to give an account of your deeds in the body. You're not going to stand before your friends. You're not going to stand before your spouse. You're not going to stand before your kids. You're not going to stand before your boss. You're not going to stand before your pastor. You are going to stand before Jesus and give an account of your faithfulness to be effective in the body. In the end, you're not rewarded by mankind. It is the Lord Christ who we serve. So what have we seen? God wants us to know his will. We see that from Paul, right? God wants us to testify about what we've heard. He wants us to be disciples so that we can be effective in making disciples. He wants us to run in such a way that we win the prize that's intentional, that's proactive, on purpose. We have spiritual gifts by which to serve, and then we're going to be rewarded based on our faithfulness to use them or to serve in the body. And we want that. We want to rule and reign with Christ. We work for the Lord only. We serve Jesus Christ. So what are some quick applications? Know the word of God. It's difficult to be a disciple and to make disciples if you don't know what it says because that's the foundation for everything that we believe. If you don't know it, you can't do it. Read it, study it, memorize it, and teach it. This is challenging and it's hard, but it's imperative. Otherwise, how can you know what the will of God is? I think I I didn't spell that right, but understand that it's obedience to God's will for you to take the message to the world in word and action. This doesn't have to be, you don't have to go to Kenya. You can start at your home with your children. You can start at work with your coworkers. You can have a ministry wherever you're at. Just be intentional. It's God's will for you to be intentional, to be proactive and purposeful in your lives as a Christian. It's intentional to run the race so that you win. It doesn't just happen. You're not going to win the race by chance. You have to be intentional. You're running as not without aim. You're boxing in such a way that you're not beating the air, but you're disciplining yourself. You're being proactive about it. Do your work for Jesus Christ, not men. Remember that in the good times and especially the bad, we serve Christ, not man. Expect to have to make tough decisions about your priorities. Expect to have to make tough decisions about your relationships, about your time, about your effort, your energy, and your emotion. Because it's the Lord Christ that we serve. Identify your spiritual gifts and employ them as good stewards of God's grace and do good work for him. 